Recovery Elevator, episode 363. It's never been that way for me to, to have one. And I just have to remind myself of that. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's podcast, we have Brian. He's 48 years old. He's from Ohio and took his last drink on March 31st, 2019. Great job, Brian. Listeners, in exactly two months, this is going to be March 31st to April 2nd, Recovery Elevator will be in downtown Denver, Colorado at the Hilton Garden Inn for our yearly conference-style retreat. This event is geared towards connection, and you'll connect in many fun ways with others who also want to ditch the booze. This event is loaded with live music, connection, and we'll be exploring meditation. In fact, all the music for the meditations are performed live. Registration for this event is now open, and go to the RE website for more information. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And before we get any further, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery. I've been taking Exact Nature's sleepy CBD pills and sleeping so well. These products are 100% THC-free and they can be a great tool for your recovery. Learn more at exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. Listeners, today I want to cover the most powerful pharmacy in the world. It's Pfizer. I'm kidding. Uh, No, it's not Pfizer. In fact, since the introduction of Prozac in 1988, I think they've made things worse for the world of mental health. The most revealing book I've read on this topic is called The Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. It's not a recovery book, but that's what helped me make the decision to ditch my ADD meds a couple years back. So today, I'm referring to a pharmacy that can create the chemicals needed to heal in a matter of seconds without any side effects. To learn more, go to www. I'm kidding on that one as well. This is not a product from a web page either. Listeners, I'm referring to the human brain that consists of roughly 100 billion neurons or about the same amount of stars we have in our own galaxy, the Milky Way. And I don't think that's a coincidence either. I said this the other night in one of our Restore course sessions. Yes, you are quitting drinking. You are no longer inserting direct toxicity into your body. But the next crucial step is you begin working with the thinking mind. First off, it's recognizing the Bruno, the inner voice, silence Bruno, or as Odette would say, silencio Bruno. Then it's trying your damnedest to get the most powerful center of cognition on the planet, more powerful than any computer built to date, to start working in your favor. So here's the plan for today's episode. I'm going to cover some examples of this powerhouse 24-7 pharmacy in action, and then I'm going to give you another tip to calm the nervous system. In Dr. Joe Dispenza's book, You Are the Placebo, he opens up with a story with a gentleman who was diagnosed with cancer. He was given roughly two months to live, and he perished around that mark. When they did the autopsy after his death, they didn't find anything wrong with him. No cancer, nothing at all. He simply believed he was going to die in that time frame, and that was the outcome. In fact, doctors no longer give terminal patients a timeline or a prognosis for this very reason, or they are much more cautious when doing so. In both modern world wars, when nurses and doctors would run out of morphine or painkillers, 
They didn't pass this information on to the soldiers who were about to have an appendage amputated. They'd say, okay, you're about to feel the morphine coming through the IV, and then they'd operate. However, when the morphine or painkiller wasn't available, they'd use a salt or saline solution that doesn't do anything for pain. The soldiers' brains, however, believing they were receiving morphine, would create the opiate chemicals needed to mask the pain. Pretty cool stuff. This next example comes from the book The Serpent in the Rainbow by Wade Davis. In the book, a scientist goes to Haiti to explore voodoo curses. This is a brief summary, but what he found was the best defense against a voodoo curse is it was believing you didn't have a curse anymore. The book covers an example of a doctor giving the patient something that would make them vomit. After vomiting, when the patient wasn't looking, the doctor would place a dead frog in the puke bucket. He would then show the patient and say, voila, you puked out the spell. The doctor found that this somewhat oddball technique was by far the most effective way to treat a voodoo curse. Another more relative example of this is a study done on the power of the placebo pertaining to alcoholic beverages. I think I first read about this in Annie Grace's book, This Naked Mind, but I've also come across it several times, and this study has been repeated several times. So participants were given non-alcoholic drinks, but were told they were drinking alcohol. The participants then began to act inebriated, some even slurred their words, and one person got a DUI while driving home. I'm kidding on the DUI part. This study, which has been done several times, will convince people that they are drunk when no alcohol at all is in their body. So how do you leverage your brain to work in your favor? It's a monumental work in progress. I'll be the first to say that, but here are the basics. Number one, you have to first recognize there's a problem. This is, for the most part, the first step in treating anything. The Native Americans realize this, and the same with Bill and Dr. Bob. In fact, it's the first step of the 12 steps. Then it's a matter of where you place your mental energies. If there's a thought which isn't congruent with your goal of quitting drinking, then quickly let it go. Is the thought a seed or a weed, as Jay Shetty, the author of Think Like a Monk, would say? If it's a weed, say thank you and let it go. If it's a seed, start watering them. Keep going back to those thoughts. Keep telling yourself you can do this. You will do this and you are doing this. I recommend having a quick powwow with your brain before starting any recovery work. This could look something like this. Hello, three-pound brain. What's up, Jerry Maguire? It's time to put all our energies and focus into this next reading, meditation, podcast episode, meeting with our sponsor, float tank session, or whatever the recovery work is. This is what I did a couple weeks ago. Occasionally in wintertime, I'll walk in my front yard and jump into the snow wearing only a swimsuit. While in the snow for 20 to 30 seconds, I get my brain to focus on the sensations in the night sky, opposed to listening to the voice that's saying, get me the fuck out of here. Again, so much of quitting drinking depends on where you put your mental energies or what you focus on or what you place your attention on. So here's a nervous system tip for today. The next time you are stressed or hear yourself say the words, come on, try this. Recognize the issue and then do all you can or do your best to think about your favorite vacation or try to recall the feeling you had when you summoned a peak or did something exhilarating. Basically, use the thinking mind to pull up a good memory or something that excites you in the near future. In the book Tuning the Human Biofield by Lean McCusick, she covers studies where energy work, think Reiki or massage, is much more effective when the recipient is placing their mental energies on the area that's being worked on. 
I find this stuff fascinating and there's a lot of data to support this. And let me share a quick example of how I practiced this. I had a really stressful day in the summer of 2020. On that same day, I heard about a cafe I remember who made a bootleg recovery elevator hat. This was before we sold any merch on the RE website. I remember going to bed that night saying to myself, Paul, you can sit in all the chemicals of stress and ruminate over things you cannot control, or you can focus on the RE bootleg hat, which for me was super flattering. Someone loved RE enough to make a bootleg hat, as in bought a hat with the same colors and cut out large fabric letters of R and E and then sewed them to the hat. I love it. Now, moving your mental energies to something else when there is something so juicy in front of you is not an easy practice. I remember lying in bed that night trying to focus on the bootleg hat. I kept getting pulled over to the other stuff that I couldn't control. I had to keep telling myself, hats, Paul, hats, and I kept doing it over and over. And the next day, I reached out to the gal who did the bootleg hats and asked if she'd be interested in doing merch for RE. Fast forward to today, Stephanie has processed over 100 merch orders on the RE website, and I'm so thankful she's on the team. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. I had a good time putting this one together. I absolutely love learning more about the brain and how you can leverage it in your favor. As I've said before, quitting drinking, yes, it's the one domino that can tip all the others over, but this then gives us the space to begin working with our thoughts and the thinking mind. Okay, before we hear from Odette and Brian, let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters. And as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash elevator. Thank you so much, Paul, for a great introduction and recovery elevator. Please help me welcome Brian to the show today. Brian, how are you? I'm good. That's great to hear, Brian. And let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink? My last drink was March 31st, 2019. Mm. How are you feeling? I'm good. It's been a, uh, a good uh, few years. I was happy to see that I actually hit 1,000 days on Christmas, so it was a good Christmas present. Oh, what a great Christmas present. A thousand. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Didn't plan it that way, but it just worked out that way. 
Yeah, one of those neat coincidences. I'm glad to hear. And can you give listeners a little background on yourself, Brian? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What do you do for work? What do you do as a hobby? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Cool. I live in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm 48 years old. I'm married. I have a 15-year-old stepson. We like to do a, a little bit of mountain biking, some outdoor stuff. Uh, my wife and I like to hit up art museums, and, uh, and we're planning on doing a lot of traveling here in the near future. Um, I am a sales manager for a global paint manufacturer, so I do a lot of uh, industrial coatings. Work all over the country. Are you working remote? Yes, my corporate office is in Charlotte, so I work out of the house normally. I, even before COVID, it's always been a, a home office type deal. So I'm already used to the COVID protocol. That's good to hear. I'm on year two, I think, almost three of uh, working from home. And I feel like I talk to the couch and the walls now. I, I feel like I need some some teammates. Luckily, I have some dogs. <laughs> yeah, I got that too. I'm hopefully he doesn't know. Start barking at the neighbor here during our call. <laughs> All right, Brian. And let us know a little bit about your history with drinking. You know, when did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your goals? And what got you to quit? Just tell us your story. I can't say I really started young. I, I had a couple drinking episodes in high school, but it was very sporadic. Uh, but every time I did, it was a binge to uh, either getting sick or passing out or both. So I kind of left that alone for a little bit. Um, after high school, I moved from Cleveland to California, where I uh, experimented with not only drinking daily, but getting into pot. And uh, eventually I found myself uh, getting into methamphetamines on the regular and uh, married my first wife out there. And we got into drugs pretty bad. Be around 1997. And uh, for the better part of that year, I was a straight uh, meth addict. I went from smoking it and snorting it to shooting it in the course of 12 months. From there, I, uh, I don't know what caused me to, but I left. I just uh, abandoned the situation and came home to Ohio. Uh, and my parents saw that I was in pretty bad shape. I've always been a bigger guy, but I came home 160 pounds, pretty skinny. Uh, they threw me in a rehab. And I kind of dropped uh, illicit drugs from there and went right to drinking. Uh, unfortunately, I grew up in a uh, an alcoholic family. My dad was an alcoholic. My mom was a substance abuser. And they didn't really want me to do drugs, but they had a problem with me not drinking. So while I was going to rehab, I was still drinking. And that was, it was ramping up. The The bar scene became my friend. And uh, it was it was ironic that I was kind of proud of myself for quitting meth, but telling people about my travails while completely shit-faced often. I married my second wife uh, in 2001, and while the bar scene died, uh, the drinking didn't. Uh, I just kept, you know, it's always been an all-or-nothing thing for me. If, I, if if there was a chance to have a couple cocktails and not get buzzed, it was almost pointless. So I was always drinking to excess, and I guess I do that a lot with, with a lot of things in life. And I'm learning that as uh, as we heal from, from the drinking thing, but that uh, my drinking basically caused me to... Uh, get divorced with my second wife because I wasn't very uh, uh, I wasn't a very good husband when I was when I was drinking a lot, lot of blackouts a lot of embarrassing situations uh, at work at home uh, I could go over countless sales meetings where where I ended up uh, waking up in the hotel lobby 
in my boxers or not remembering getting back to my room, hitting on people that I worked with despite being married. This wasn't a good scene. The question that I have for you at this point is, were you still with the belief that so long as you weren't going back to illicit drugs, this was fine? Or at this point, were you starting to question if alcohol was really affecting your life or were you still in denial? Um, I, I had put some moderation things in place over the years, you know, no, no doing shots during the week or only drink beer or only drink wine. Um, I, I did see that there was a problem with the excess and I, I did try to find ways to, uh, to tone that down. Quitting wasn't an option when I was married to my second wife. She was a slightly codependent with me. Well, she would complain about my drinking and how embarrassing I was. I would come home from business trips and there would always be a new bottle of Crown Royal or a 12 pack of beer in the fridge. Um, it was her belief that, uh, you know, if I sobered up, maybe, uh, we would get divorced, which ended up happening anyway. I realized there was a problem there, but I didn't really want to take the steps to complete, completely quit. I thought I could control it. One of the quotes that I heard early on listening to the RE podcast was, I don't know the quote exactly, but it was, it was basically, if I was trying to control my drinking, I wasn't having a good time. But if I was having a good time, I was out of control. And that, that spoke to me uh, early on. It was like, wow smack me right in the head. Yeah, hundred percent. Cause you're saying that you had, you know, a lot of what people would call rock bottom moments, like, you know, incidents at work and a few things that you said were just continuing to happen. So was there anything specific that got you to start seeing things differently or how long did this go for before you started attempting to quit? I, I really made the decision to do something drastic. I, I had gotten laid off in 18, uh, 2018 in November and had the opportunity to apply for and got a job that um, really changed my life uh, in the salary that I got. It, it, it was life-changing money. And uh, I had to go to Texas for training and uh, a sales meeting. So it was a week of training. And then and we were still in Texas for for this big sales meeting. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of heavy conversations at my house. Hey, you know, you can't drink like you drink at home there, you're going to end up in trouble. And I, and I made a lot of promises that I would not, uh, I wouldn't fuck up. And uh, I made it all the way through everything. And the last night at the sales meeting, I, I was even trying to moderate a little bit there drinking. Uh, every other drink was club soda and then it was club soda and vodka. And then I don't remember getting my hotel room. I don't know how I had a big gash on my head, but uh, it was a, it was a wake up call in the shower in the morning, just trying to pl- put the, uh, rest of the evening back together, realizing that I had broken some promises and kind of fixed it in my head that I needed to quit. Now, I didn't quit the next day, but I, I sort of put a subconscious plan in motion to quit April Fool's Day because I guess I thought that was funny, ironic somehow. But yeah, it stuck. I didn't have a good time of it. I was pretty much a dry drunk. I was pissed off and I was angry and I just could not stop raging out about everything, every little thing bothered me. I knew I couldn't drink anymore, but I didn't know what to do. Everything that I'd done up to that point was the drinking was a reward. You know, whether I had a good meal or I had a great sales call or I had a, a good workout or a run or a, a good swim or, or whatever I did, there was always some reward at the end that was basically a glass of vodka. 
And uh, I just didn't know what to do with myself. I, I couldn't do anything. Everything else was tied to that. And eventually I got through that. It took it took a good couple months. It took a lot of listening to the podcast and listening to some other podcasts out there and uh, getting into a couple of the meditation apps to try to help calm my mind and realizing that uh, I'm not the only one out there that has this issue. The, the podcast and everybody's story, everybody's story had something that tied to my story, which is just awesome. Whether people are going to AA or they're doing the, the Dharma recovery or just, just being an RE, it's been a, it's been a game changer for me. You know, I really appreciate you sharing how hard it was at the beginning. And I do think that a lot of our suffering links us, but also a lot of our contacts and our life tends to be different. And I feel like, you know, there are different types of alcoholics or people who drink or however you want to call us, but some people drink to numb the pain and some people drink to celebrate and some people drink all the time, whether it's to numb or to celebrate. And I do hear from your story, if I'm hearing right, that it was there as a reward. And I sometimes feel like that becomes a little bit trickier in recovery because you have to learn to celebrate differently and to find a different reward system, which had to be hard because like you, you mentioned even, you know, like after a run, after a workout. So after like some victories, not just, I'm just right. drinking out of despair. It's like, you're actually drinking as an act of celebration. And that had to really go hand in hand with what you were saying about being upset about the whole thing. Right. And, and I'm learning uh, as I go, it's, 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 it's a whole lot more deeper than that. I, I grew up in a pretty harsh environment. My, my parents were, were divorced early and it was fairly uh, transient. I went to a lot of different schools, moved around because one parent didn't have their shit together while the other one did. There was a lot of uh, custody battles and, and things. And, and I kind of was cold growing up. I didn't have a whole lot of emotion. And, and, and I learned that drinking kind of gave me that emotion. It made me huggy. It made me lovey. And I'm trying to still learn that now with my wife because it, it added that level of emotion that I didn't really have growing up trying to deal with some parental issues. It's, it's, it's always a battle, right? It's a total battle. And, and I sound like a broken record at this point, but it, it works in many ways. The drinking works, the drinking um, mm -hmm. does do something for us that benefits us. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day and she said, you know, it's not that we don't have all these tools. It's that, we have tools, but sometimes our brain knows exactly what's going to give us the desired result or the what you're saying, you know, that that personality trait or that release in the pain or whatever it is. Our brains are smart. And even though oh, yeah. we can be rooted in our recovery and our sobriety, our brains still know, like, if I drink, I will be more lovey-dovey. And it is really hard to just accept that, which is I feel like a lot of us who have dry drunk chapters, it's just this lack of acceptance and this really, you know, just part of that grieving process of like, I don't want to give this up. So, I mean, I'm really happy that you got through it because you said it was a hard couple of months and was like the podcast, what was rooting you and changing in your daily routine or what else was working there at the beginning? It was pretty much the first few weeks was straight white knuckle. I just quit and was pissed off about it. And I, <clears throat> I have a couple friends that are in the program. And one suggested I listen to a couple AA podcasts. And I, and I tried that. But they didn't resonate with me. And I was just searching the uh, 
of the podcasting and came through the RE and it was uh, just a, I can't say it enough, just a windfall of information and just hearing everybody's stories. Just like, like I said, there was a resonance with every single person I listened to. I probably binged 30 episodes over the course of two days. I drive a lot for my job so I can do that in the car, but I, I can remember sitting in like specific parking lots when I heard that quote that I referenced earlier about the having a good time and not being in control. I was for whatever reason, the just everybody's stories here is what kept it together. And then I, then I joined cafe RE online and, and, and I, and I threw out, you know, my first question was about the anger issues and, and some of the people out there had, had mentioned getting into the meditation. So I, it was pretty much RE driven recovery after the first couple of weeks. And seeing everybody on, on Facebook and realizing that, you know, you're not alone in this. It was, it, it's a good community to be in. Yeah, it's that peer support that we talk about that ends up being really mm -hmm. helpful. Because I'm curious, you know, in those first couple of weeks where you were white knuckling and you were having a hard time, was there a thought or a reason why, even though you were having such a hard time at the beginning, you kept at it? What do you think kept you keeping on? especially in those hard moments. I, I didn't want to be that embarrassment anymore uh, mm. to have to call and tell my wife that I don't fucking remember waking up this morning. And I know I promised you that I wouldn't uh, do that this trip. I didn't want to do that again. I hear that. And I appreciate it because it sounds like it came really from yourself. You know, it is really hard when other people are demanding the change in us. And and for many of us, that is the the journey. Like I can think of my parents' story and my mom kind of put down the ultimatum on him. But I do think mm -hmm. that if truly it is ourselves who don't want to be in that same scenario, it, it, it does help a little bit, I think, with the acceptance possibly coming a little bit sooner and the resentments that we build at other people. So yeah, I just, I appreciate you sharing. And Brian, in terms of like your routine, you know, you said you've been working from home and that's been in place for you for a few years. What did yep. you have to do differently being at home in order to not fall for the cravings and the temptations? I had to, uh, I had to stop everything. I, I stopped working out. I stopped going out. I stopped having bonfires. At least the first, the first year was pretty rough. We went, you know, I I quit in April. So you go and go into the spring and it's bonfire season. I just, I couldn't, couldn't do it. Right. And I, and I slowly reintroduced things to that. Uh, you know, I, when I was drinking, I was actually doing triathlons. I couldn't train like that anymore. It, it just was a no-go. And I, and I just switched up the routine after a while, instead of running and, and biking, I was uh, just, just lifting and, and doing just cardio, different types of cardio. I just changed. I did the same things, but in a different way. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't even cook for a while. Like it was. It was nothing to drink a bottle of wine and, and cook dinner. So I we, we ate out a lot. You know, that first year was pretty rough on my family. But now the routine is. Uh, I'm a pretty big follower of like the seven habits. I get up in the morning. I make a, a to do list, both a personal and a business list of things that I need to accomplish. And I just try to live that list and, and work my way through it. The habits has you create a value proposition for things that are important to you. And the top of my value list is sobriety. I reference that often and just understand the importance of it. And that kind of guides how I plot out my life. Sales meetings and uh, conferences and trade shows are, are part of what I do too. So I'm, I'm happy that there's a, 
a variety of non-alcoholic beers out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I know that's not for everybody. And, and it was actually hard the first year for me to even try one of them, but I've gotten used to the taste of Heineken Zero. Well, you know what? I think that it's very brave what you did about basically shutting out everything that used to be kind of like Brian's identity, you know, the triathlete and cook. And like you basically destroyed your habits and your rituals in order to protect your sobriety. And I think that Mm -hmm. is extremely courageous because so many of us want nothing to change. We just want to not drink, but everything else, like I want to keep maybe the same friends and rituals. And some of these habits aren't even you know, toxic, like just working out and exercising and being a triathlete is something that is good for you. But I think what you what I hear is that you were trying to unwire that you had a relationship with. Well, if I'm training, then I'm drinking like you had to really do everything completely different. And I think that jumping into the unknown like that is really hard to do. So I just really do want to commend that, especially having a family, like you said, it disrupts like the status quo and and how dynamics are at home. So how was that? If you don't mind me asking, did you have like open communication with your wife? Was she on board? How was that process in terms of like being in a family unit? I I sort of played off the first few weeks as I want to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stop drinking a little bit. And then after the first couple of weeks and I started listening to the podcast, I actually shared the podcast with my wife and she listened to it. And I said, this is where I'm at. I just don't want to drink anymore. And she was about the most supportive out of everybody. We have a, we have a really good relationship. She, she supported me. She got up all the booze out of the house. So, you know, mm. she put up with, you know, Hey, I don't want to sit by a fire tonight and watch my neighbors drink. Um, and she suffered through a lot of my anger issues. She, she gets to put up with me when I'm being a dick. Mm-hmm. So, um, she, she dealt with a lot of that and, uh, you know, I love her for it and we're still here. We're, we're, we're still, uh, you know, every, 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 every day is a new challenge. So, you know, there's a, there, there's a lot to be said for a, a good partnership. And, and, and I think she even emailed Paul to, to mm. ask how she could, she could, uh, be involved with somebody who's just a spouse of somebody uh-huh. who drinks. I a hundred percent see what you're saying and i'll i'll reference my parents again on this on this Mm -hmm. episode which is the the same you know every time my dad collects another chip everyone Mm -hmm. looks over to my mom and we we go to the meetings together as like the celebration meeting with the cake and everything and everyone just also commends her because it is you know in a marriage it is it is a, a partnership and it does require things to change and i think that I, I think change is hard and it's hard to be in a dynamic with someone and then all of a sudden change it up for them, you know, and especially when they're not the ones with the with the behavior or the po- or the problem, then it it's hard to reconcile that. And I've seen my parents kind of go through those shifts that you're sharing as well. And I do commend your wife and my mom, too, because I know that's hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I said, my wife's a saint. She she lived through a lot of uh, red face the screaming episodes as I was trying to find the path. When would you say, Brian, that things started getting, I don't want to say easy because that's a tricky word, but just better where you were starting to really maybe even feel the benefits and see the benefits and not feel as white knuckly. I think I had to get through uh, the year of firsts before everything started to normalize. You know, I had to get through this summer and, and get through um, some death anniversaries for my, my parents. 
which were all always tied to drinking. You know, my dad died, got to drink a bottle of tequila. My mom died, got to drink a Bloody Mary, you know, had to get through those, had to get through Christmas, which has never been a, a really fun time for me anyways, but it was always made more fun by alcohol. So after about the first uh, 12 months, I, I guess, you know, there was a little bit more normalcy. Okay. I did it once I can do it again. It, it was getting that history behind me. Yeah. And, and once again, I think this episode is really focusing on, you know, it, it does get better and the mm-hmm. non-permanence of things being hard <clears throat> and just having through get, having to get through these initial chapters as not fun as they may seem and just really hanging on to that hope that things will get better. You know, I usually say if you're going to go back to a party again and you don't have a great time, that's okay. That's normal. Like don't expect Mm. that everything is going to be fantastic when you quit drinking. For some people I've heard it does, but for many of us, it takes this new repetition process and then you can find that after enough reps. At least that was the case for me too. So I'm glad yes. that you you were able to see that that after the year of first things were kind of starting to find a new groove. Yeah, and you know even even with the you know the habit of not being in the habit of drinking anymore, it still reappears. I, I just posted uh, at middle of December. I was at a training and it was a long four days of training, and then it was five individual tests that we had to take to to, to clear the certification program that I that I took. And at the end of it, I was just like, damn, I want to drink. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, okay, I got to go post that out there. And I threw that up on, on the RE website because it was, it was stunning how, how quickly it came on and, and it almost felt justified, but you know, it's, it's still there. There's a challenge that all the time. It always comes, it always fears its head up and, uh, and just tests you a little bit. Yeah. We're always close to that. And, and sometimes it does catch us just off guard. Like, Ooh, where did that come from? But I think posting was was great. You know, I don't know if isolating is a symptom for you, but we a lot of the times or what I see in the groups and in our communities is including myself. I reach out after I had the struggling moment. You know, it's mm-hmm. hard for many of us to do it in real time. And that's really where the magic of community can happen when we're like, I'm struggling right now, not, oh my gosh, yesterday was such a hard day. I always wanted, like, I felt like I wanted to drink and doing it in the moment like that, I think is a really good skill and a really great tool to have. What other things do you think help when you get nostalgic or get a craving? Uh, the, the big thing for me is playing it forward. It's knowing that uh, it's never going to just be that one, you know, you, you can romanticize uh, how good a, a Manhattan might taste. But uh, I know it's not one Manhattan. It's it's four, and then it's a, a twelve pack of beer, and and then waking up uh, not knowing where the hell I was last night, or apologizing to my wife for being an idiot, or you know I, I know that's where it's gonna go, uh, and that's that's key for me. I mean, it's sure it'd be great to have something with dinner, but I just know, I just know that's it's never been that way for me to to have one, and I just have to remind myself of that. That's that's my key in my uh, in my playbook. You know, it's always looking at uh, what's going to happen. Uh, and there was a uh, I don't know if it was Craig who posted it on the Facebook page or, or somebody, but they they, they had perfectly illustrates. This. It basically says uh, the first one is easy to say no to. It's the next two through twenty I got a problem with. Mm-hmm. And I kind of uh, I kind of I have that written in my planner. <laughs> I reference it often. Yeah, it's really easy to remember things as they benefit us instead of what reality 
is. You know, I really do think it's human nature. So sometimes we do need those like post-it reminders right in our face because our mind is really good at justifying our behaviors or even remembering things a little bit differently than they really were, you know? So I feel and I hear you pick up what resonates from other people's shares and what works for you and really hold on to that. And I think that is really important that we, you know, different things resonate to all of us and whatever really clicks in you, hold on to it, you know, because we're all so similar, but also so different at the same time. Right. There's, there's a lot of tools in the toolbox. Now we're just have to know how to use it. Other than, you know, just being able to stack days and not drinking, what else did you notice was just improving in your life as time went by and as time has gone by, Brian? Uh, well, you know, I, for my career, uh, within the first year, I threw a lot of uh, time and energy into my job. Uh, I wasn't, uh, I used to, used to think about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a high functioning alcoholic, but, um, when I wasn't hungover, I, I did my job much better. So I went from a salesman to a sales manager. So I've improved my, my, my station in my career, which is great. I'm learning to be a, a better stepdad as time goes on. Um, I'm also, I, I feel like I'm a better husband. I'm, I'm more present for the good and the bad, you know? Some things are harder when you don't numb them, but uh, it helps me uh, learn how to be better later on down the line. Yeah, learning to stay, learning to stay, whether it's for the good or for the bad. I feel like that is the real challenge. And, you know, Brian, I know you had a first encounter and first addiction with illicit drugs. Have you, through all of this time, started to kind of uncover what even drove you to hang on to first, you know, drugs and then alcohol? Have you kind of started to unveil what was really underneath that behavior? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up, um, like I said, in a in not, not always pleasant household. I had a lot of self-esteem issues as a kid. Uh, my parents were very big on me being heavy. Uh, one year I got slim fast for Christmas. So mm. I always had it, a self-image issue and that made me... Uh, like to medicate where I, I just didn't give a shit anymore about it. That, that, that was a big thing. Uh, the irony uh, in all of this is, is that I had to stop uh, for a little while uh, my, my pursuit of fitness and, and losing weight and, and just, just let things be. I had to enjoy other things. Uh, and unfortunately that includes food. So I gained a little bit of weight back, but I, I'm seeing the, uh, where the, where the self-esteem issues uh, came from. And I went back recently and looked at some boxes of pictures of myself as a kid. And I always thought that I was this super heavy, uh, obese kid, but I'm looking at pictures. My wife was like, I thought you said you were fat. Mm. And, and I, I wasn't, it was just a, a projection that I got from, unfortunately, my parents. Yeah. It's and, really uh, hard being a parent and oh <laughs> gosh, it's, it's, we're, we're going to all mess up. I, I, I feel like no matter what, but I feel like learning, being able to look back and learning where some things came from and kind of making peace with them is so helpful as we're adults now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of where it lies. You know, it's all, it, it's all boils down to, you know, a self-image problem that I've had for, for years. You know, and, and we're, you and I are different, but I also want to just, kind of double click on what you just said about 
you know, gaining some weight out of just actually living life, you know, because I think for me, a lot of the times I was in this pursuit of also changing myself and my body. I have a different relationship with fitness now, but some years ago, you know, I was more focused on that outcome than on living life. And I feel like now that I'm have been in recovery this long, and I think even though I still struggle, I am more present. I mean, that does come with some enjoyment of food and my body changing once again, but I feel like it's different now because, you know, always want to be better and I always want to PR and I'm competitive. And also that's not what I'm chasing anymore. Right. Yeah. I, I, uh, I was, I was happy to complete my first couple of triathlons. I don't really need to go back and, and do it again. It was a, it was a hard struggle for me. I'm, I, I'm, I'm heavier. So running was never my strong suit. I can, I can do other things. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, just being okay with where we're at now and still having goals, I think is a good, good place to be. Having fun getting to those goals. That's, 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 that's it for me. Yes, 100%. And Brian, what unexpected benefit of sobriety have you had? Unexpected benefit. You know, I, I just, all the way around, I'm just, I always thought I was pretty good at what I do as far as building relationships with people in my job. Now that I'm sober, I, I, I just see that it's improved tenfold. Um, I'm, I'm better at having technical conversations in, in, in my world, uh, remembering faces at trade shows. Mm. Um, you know, just uh, I, this, this last trade show I went to, uh, I must have ran into 30 people. Otherwise, I would have been bleary-eyed to slurring at the bar. Uh, I made a lot of connections. Uh, it's, it's definitely improved my cognitive mm-hmm. ability. At these events, um, mm-hmm. have you ever gotten any pushback from people you meet when you have shared now that, oh, I'll just have this non-alcoholic beer or I don't drink? How have you navigated that? Uh, I know you said that you were grateful that th- there are options for you, but in mm-hmm. terms of the social interaction with new people that you've met, how has that been? It's been uh, at at the trade shows. It's not too bad of an issue. A couple sales meetings ago, I, I a group of well, one of the outside events they did for our sales meeting was taking everybody to the local brewery, and uh, I, I found a, a couple people just in conversations that you know didn't really want to go drink, so we we got permission from our managers to do something else. So you know, there's always people in the room that are doing the same thing you are. They just learn to cloak it. Where I've run into some pushback is with uh, with some people that I really thought were were some close friends, not my real close friends that that I've known since school. All knew I had a problem, and they were just waiting for me to figure it out. Uh, but I had some people that I, I really considered were very close to me that uh, I just don't see anymore because they didn't ever see past the all the all the drinking we did. It's unfortunate, but were they really friends in the first place? I mean, you know, all, all they could ever talk about was all the drinking we did. Well, I guess, you know, yeah, it's, it's sad. It's sad. I, one of them is uh, somebody I live right next to. So I don't, I don't see them as often as I should It's because they're, I think they have a lot of insecurities about their own drinking. Yeah. And you know, it's back to what we were saying earlier about that. It's sad, but that willingness to, to let it go and to have to turn the page, but it is hard, especially like you said, when you, when you think that those people are not the ones that are going to fall to the side. So, I mean, yeah. It is, it is hard and, and 
sometimes sobriety does mean ending some relationships, meeting some new people, you know, back to what you were sharing about the trade show and the brewery. You know, there are always people who are doing other stuff that we were so focused on not even noticing them because we were just focusing on the next drink that you're right. You know, it's it's even if even if they're not recovering, maybe they just don't feel like drinking that day. You know, it's just stuff that we never even fathomed existed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, you're at, you're at a sales meeting and, you know, you should be, you know, it, it made some pretty good connections with people just, just finding out, hey, I don't really want to go to the brewery either. Let's go. Uh, let's go have a nice dinner somewhere else. So there are those people in those situations. You just have to, uh, I, I think being open about not drinking helps open those doors with other people too. They, 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 they you put, you put the words out into uh, the atmosphere and, and it, it attracts the right people. Yeah. And when you are, traveling for work. I know that is really hard for a lot of listeners who have similar scenarios as you where there's conferences or meetings or, you know, Mm. conferences that is really hard, but it is also a great opportunity. You know, a lot of the times I remember saying when I, when I've gone to a few of these, that there wasn't enough time to do other stuff, to see the city, to, to go check out restaurants. And I do think that although most itineraries are pretty packed with these conventions, there's always time, especially if you're not drinking, you can go and wake up earlier and go for a walk around the town or figure a new restaurant at night instead of just being at the all-inclusive bar. So once you are comfortable with those scenarios, you also find all of the things you were missing the previous times that you may have been there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, it's much easier to, to figure out dining bills when you don't have to split the check. So your company doesn't know how much you're drinking on their tab. <laughs> yes. 100%. Oh, Brian, well, we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabulous. Are you ready? Cool. Okay. What would you say to your younger self? I would say moderation is key. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? Butter pecan. What are your, some of your favorite resources in recovery? The Recovery Elevator uh, podcast, for sure. Uh, the website. And then uh, I have uh, I've taken to reading a lot of the, uh, the Quitlet, like uh, Brene Brown and Eckhart Tolle, and uh, trying, to, trying to find a more meditative path. What are you excited about right now? I am excited that we're in a new year and uh, hopefully uh, an end to uh, the COVID. Eventually, it seems like it's wrapping up now, but I'm, I'm hoping it will uh, subside and get weaker and uh, life can get back to some sort of, sort of normalcy. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if lying. Yeah, you might have to say adios to booze if you find yourself uh, crying in the shower, not knowing how you got your room, but thanking God that you actually did. Oh, Brian, I'm so happy that you're here with us and that you got to share your story. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Happy New Year. Take care. Yeah, you too. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to share with you something that stood out to me of this interview. Brian said something along the lines of getting through your year of firsts before things get better. I know that we are flooded with beautiful recovery images on social media and, you know, all of this marketing sharing how sobriety is the best thing that can happen to you and how your life will transform and get better. 
And it does. <laughs> but for many of us, it also takes time to get there. It takes time of living in an uncomfortable place. It takes time of living in an angry place or a not so fun place. And I just want to remind you, especially if you're early on your journey, that it's okay. Everything that you are feeling is okay. If you're not having a ton of fun yet, that's okay. If you're not loving sobriety yet, that's okay. Just try to focus on doing the next right thing. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking. thinking.